For our scripture reading now, we turn to the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 3. We'll be training our attention today on verse 8, especially the second part of that verse. But what I've printed for you there in the bulletin, I'll read for us now, verses 4 through 10. Actually, I'll read a little bit more than what you've got there in your bulletin. I'll begin at verse 4 and go down through verse 10. Hear now the word of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, words that are challenging and thrilling at the very same time. So we're driven to our knees, both in humility and in joy at the very same time. And we pray now that you would give us ears to hear your voice speaking to us by these words. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What kind of reaction do you think you would get if you were to send out a Christmas card that had some kind of tender Christmas time or wintertime image on the front, maybe the image of mother and child? Maybe cattle lowing by a manger. Maybe holly and ivy with deer in woods. Maybe even a photo of the family, all of you there smiling in matching sweaters. Maybe even pajamas. Something like that on the front. And then on the inside of the card is a Bible verse. Because sometimes we do put Bible verses on the insides of our Christmas cards, and it was this verse, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a bold move with your Christmas card. And then you could sign it, you know, happy holidays from us to you and yours, all our best wishes for the years to come. What kind of reaction do you think you'd get Perhaps it's for the better that Christmas cards are one of the few forms of communications left that don't have a comments section. 
or a reply-all feature. Some folks might find it a bit cheeky, putting that verse on your Christmas card. Some folks might consider it positively confrontational, or at least a little tone-deaf. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Merry Christmas. But even if we don't send out a card like that, it's worth stopping to contemplate. This time of year, there are a lot of people who are stopping to contemplate the birth of the baby Jesus. Well, you do not fully understand the birth of the baby Jesus if you don't understand that that happened, that he came, that he appeared for this purpose. The one that John highlights here, which is to destroy the works of the devil. A vague notion that there's evil in the world. That won't do. You've got to have more than that. A slightly less vague notion that there are some people in the world who commit evil. Even that doesn't go quite far enough. You don't fully understand the birth of that baby in Bethlehem if you don't understand that there is this creature called the devil and that the Son of God appeared in order to destroy that creature's works. So we've got to come to grips with 1 John 3, verse 8, the second half of that verse. And that's what we're going to aim to do this morning. So yes, we are focusing on just the second half of that one verse, but you can't help but notice the context around it. In the verses before and after verse 8, John is saying some pretty strong stuff about sin, about believers, about unbelievers. John is making rather strong claims about what is true of believers when it comes to sin. Things like, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. That's verse 8. Now, we just need to bear in mind that John cannot be denying here in chapter 3 what he clearly said early on in chapter 1, which is chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 8. So here in chapter 3, John can't be denying that with the strong things that he says. He can't be taking that away, what he gave earlier. He can't be saying that Christians never sin at all in any way. No, here in chapter 3, John must be saying something like, sin is no longer the deepest disposition of the believer, and therefore the settled lifestyle of the believer. Sin is no longer who the believer really is. By the grace of God, that's just not true of him anymore. And the reason that cannot be true of the Christian anymore is what's true of Christ. Look at verse 5. The mission of Christ. Verse 5, John says, You know that he, that is the Son, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So there in verse 5, even before we get to our verse in verse 8, John has already touched on this, on why the Son appeared. He's already introduced this idea that the Son appeared to carry out an anti-sin mission. And so in our verse, in verse 8, 
what John is doing is making that point again about the mission of Christ. But now in verse 8, in our verse, it's bigger. It's more expansive than the way he put it before. In verse 8, it's not just he appeared to take away sins. Now it's bigger. In verse 8, it's he appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. So if we're going to get a handle on that statement, and it is a rich statement... There are two things that we need to stop and think about. And these are going to be the two things that we focus on for the rest of our time this morning. The first is what John means by the Son of God appeared. So we'll start with that. And then the second is what John means by destroy the works of the devil. If we can stop and think about each of those two, we'll get a pretty good handle on what John is saying here. The Son of God appeared. That'll be our first. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. That'll be our second. So let's start with this. The Son of God appeared. What we need to understand is that when John says that about the Son, John means something very different from what we sometimes mean when we talk about appearing. Appearing. So, for example, you're standing there with some of your colleagues around the office water cooler, and you ask your colleague, are you going to go to the office holiday party? And he says, I don't know, I may just make an appearance. And you know what that means. When he says, I might just make an appearance, what he means is, he's going to show up and stay as briefly as possible, but just long enough to make sure that the boss sees him there. And then he's out of there. Brief, disinterested, uncommitted, a mere appearance. Sometimes that's what we mean by that word. And then this as well. Sometimes we use the word appearance or appearances to refer to something that's relatively superficial. We'll make a distinction between the way things look, the way things appear on the outside, and what turns out to be the real state of affairs behind or beneath those Appearances. Jesus himself uses the term that way sometimes. In John's gospel, in John 7, Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances. So yeah, sometimes we use the term in those different ways. But in our verse, when John says the Son of God appeared, he doesn't mean anything like that. He's not saying that the Son of God just showed up briefly, without interest, without commitment, looking to bail as quickly as possible. And he's not saying that the Son of God did anything relatively superficial, anything misleading or unreal that was meant to mask the real state of affairs. Far from it. John is not saying that. What John is saying When he says in our verse that the Son of God appeared. Well, he's referring to the same thing that John says in another verse, a more famous verse. John 1, 14, where it says the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John's talking about here. When he says the Son of God appeared, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we mean by the incarnation. 
The Son of God didn't stop being the Son of God in the Incarnation. He didn't subtract from himself anything of his deity. Instead, he added to himself. He added to himself a true human nature. And so in Philippians 2, Paul puts it this way, that he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So that in the fullness of time, in a particular moment in time, the Son of God, born of Mary, was now the God-man. Now one person with two natures, now with a human nature in addition to his eternal divine nature. And the point is this, when that child was conceived in the womb of the virgin, it's not the case that at that point the Son of God began to be. That was not his beginning. Now this is an everlasting, an eternal person who transcends time itself. That was not his beginning. That was his appearing. That's when the eternally existing Son of God, the one who is I am, stepped down and appeared on the stage of human history. He showed himself. He manifested himself. He appeared, and he did it by adding humanity to his divinity. Maybe the most startling expression in the whole of the Bible that gets at this reality is the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans. Romans 8, verse 3. Romans 8, verse 3, Paul says that in the Incarnation, the Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8, 3. In the likeness of sinful flesh. That's startling. That's jarring. That's potentially troubling. So you stop and think about it. We know that Jesus himself was not a sinner. He couldn't be. And so when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.3 that the Son of God appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh, we know that Paul cannot mean that the Son of God became a sinner. Instead, what Paul must mean is that the Son of God entered into the experience of sinful men and women like us as intimately as possible without joining us as a sinner himself. That must be what it means. He must mean that the Son of God took to himself a true human nature that's just like ours, except for sin. So that he could live a true human life just like ours, except for sin. So that he could experience the kind of frustration and sorrow that belonged to the human race because of our sin, though he had none. So you see how far removed we are at this point from our idea of mere outward appearances that mask a different reality. No, this was reality, as real as reality can be. He was true man. One of the most notorious heresies of the early Christian church was a heresy that we might label appearance-ism. Historically, it came to be known as docetism, because that's just what the label docetism means. It comes from the Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And what those folks were saying is that the Son of God, he only appeared to be truly human, but he wasn't. It only seemed that way. 
And so those who knew better, those who knew the truth of God's word, had to take a stand against that claim. They had to say, no, if the Son of God merely appeared to be man, in the sense of misleading impressions instead of true incarnation, if that's the case, let's not kid ourselves. We're lost because we have no Savior. It has to be that he took to himself a true human nature and that it didn't just look that way. It was real. And think about this, too. That verse at the beginning of John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was no mere brief pop-in that he was eager to end as quickly as possible. He became flesh and dwelt among us. We've talked before about how we live in a surfer Culture, we're constantly web surfing and channel surfing, constantly clicking, never staying, never dwelling. That's the world we live in. That's the air we breathe. That's the way we go through a day. Sometimes we even treat holiday parties that way. We get invited to so many of them, sometimes so many of them on the same day that all we can do is surf. All we can do is pop in and make an appearance without even sitting down. Because we might get stuck in conversation if we sit down. So we remain seated with an eye on the door and we're out of there as soon as we can be to move on to the next one. But when the Son of God appeared, when he came, he came to stay. He came to dwell Sometimes people have a bunch of holiday parties to go to, and they're not really committed to any one of them. But the Son of God came with one mission and with one mission only. And he appeared in the sense of true incarnation in order to take that one mission and turn it into mission accomplished. And it would take more than a brief appearance the way we use the term, for that to be. So that's the first thing we need to understand, the first of our two points today. The Son of God appeared. It was real, and it was a dwelling, a dwelling with us. Now here's the second of our two points today. Why did he do that, according to John? To destroy the works of the devil. So we have not only the statement of fact that the Son of God appeared, as we've just been considering, but we have the reason why. We have what the mission was. It was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, okay, what does John mean by that? The works of the devil. Well, remember verse 5. Verse 5 helps us here. Verse 5 gives us a good start. Remember what he says back in verse 5. He says... You know that he, that is the Son, appeared in order to take away sins. So, if he says that back in verse 5, that's a good start. That must shed some light on what John means here in verse 8, where he talks about the works of the devil. Among other things, what he means is sins in human lives, in our own lives. 
violations of God's law. In thought, word, and deed, doing things we shouldn't, not doing things we should. Our sins, we can put it this way, our sins are devilish. Because they're the fruit of Satan's first tempting act in the Garden of Eden. Our sins, in that sense, bear his stamp to this very day. So we can start there. What are the works of the devil? Human sins. We can start there, but we can't stop there. That's not the end. That's the truth, but that's not the whole truth. The phrase, the works of the devil, that's a phrase that's dreadfully broad. There's more to it than the devilish things that we think and say and feel and do. It also includes the things that Satan himself has done and is still doing, all of it. Accusing, lying, tempted, even though we cannot see him with the eyes of the flesh, even though we cannot fully understand all that he's about and how. We know that much from Scripture, that he's constantly lying, accusing, tempting, and in some mysterious way, doing those things in a way that can draw us in. So it includes the things that he has done and is still doing. It also includes all of the fallout of his sins and ours that we witness in the world. All of the consequences that we see in the world around us, the brokenness, the misery, the confusion, the hopelessness, the dying, all of it. Those are the works of the devil. As I was saying, that very phrase, it's, it's dreadfully broad. As uncomfortable as it is, we're practically invited to flip through Scripture so that we can fill that phrase in. Yes, it's our sins, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. And the point is, the Son of God appeared for the purpose of destroying all of that. So as dreadful as the category is in its breadth, the works of the devil, that's how wonderful is the mission and the work of Christ to destroy it all to the uttermost. The mission of the Son from the beginning was to save us, even to change us, so that we wouldn't sin anymore. And that day's coming. And his mission was to overthrow Satan so that he couldn't sin and accuse and tempt and lie anymore. And that day is coming. And his mission was to undo all of the dreadful fallout of his sins and ours. In other words, to make things right again. To make them whole again. To usher in a brand new glorious world that will be utterly unstained by Satan's fingerprints. And that day, that world is coming. That's the mission he came on. And here's the key. If he was going to do that, if he was going to successfully complete his mission, then the Son of God had to do more than appear. He had to appear in order to work. 
When you go to work, well, you go, pause, in order to work. You don't just go. You actually have to work when you get to where you're going, even if that's just your office upstairs. You close the door and you get to work there. The Son of God had to do more than appear. In other words, he had to do more than take to himself a true human nature. Once he did that, we can put it this way, there was work to do. Again, Philippians 2, Paul says, He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Well, then there were things to do in that form, in that likeness, in our nature. And what did he have to do? Well, everything. Everything that we already know about the saving works of Christ, past and present and future. His life of perfect obedience on earth as a true boy, young man, man, and servant. His public ministry of truth and healing. His death on the cross to pay for our sins. His resurrection from the dead because death couldn't hold him. Everything he's doing right now, reigning from heaven, building his church, following through on that promise. Everything he's going to do on the day that he comes back to judge and to renew. He had to do all of that. And he still has to do the things that he hasn't done yet, including judging Satan himself. Everything. So as as awful as that category is, the works of the devil... Awful because of its breadth. Well, that's how broad are the works that Jesus had to do. The works that the Son had to do in order to destroy the devil's work. In the grand sweep of that everything that Jesus had to do, surely it's his death and resurrection that stand out. Right? That, that, was, that was the heart of the matter. Listen to what Jesus said the night before he died. This is John 12. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Listen to that again. John 12. Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He said that the night before he died. Because he knew that his own death and then his own resurrection three days later would be the Fatal blow against the evil one. It would be the blow, the strike, that would cast him out. Or listen to the writer of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 2. Here's a fitting passage on a day like today. Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He, that is the Son, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2. There's another uh, destruction passage. There in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the reason the Son of God appeared was to die, and the reason he had to die was to destroy the devil himself and to set us free. 
As Paul puts it in Colossians, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, this is Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Disarmed them. Disarmed the devil himself. Colossians 2. On the cross, he paid for our sins. In his resurrection, he conquered death. And now all that's left is everything he's doing right now. This morning. Reigning from heaven. Building his church. Everything that he's going to do on the last day when he comes back to judge and renew and usher in a new world. What all of that amounts to is working out the victory that he's already won and he will do it. It is no wonder... As you read through the gospel accounts at the beginning of the New Testament, it is no wonder that the demons trembled and raged when Jesus began his public ministry on earth. Of course they did. Because even they knew what he'd come to do. Even they knew what it would finally mean for them. And the line in the witch in the wardrobe, why does the white witch tremble and rage when she has heard that Aslan has appeared? She trembles and rages because she knows what Aslan has appeared to do. Even she has some sense of what his mission is. She knows that Aslan hasn't appeared just to be seen and then leave again. No, she knows that he has appeared in order to save. And she knows that saving is also going to mean destroying. She knows that it's going to mean the destruction of everything that she stands for And has worked for. And what a picture that is. Of what John is giving us here. The reason the son of God appeared. Was to destroy the works of the devil. And when Christ comes back at the end of the age. When he's done everything that he's going to do on that day. Then he will have done it. Mission. Accomplished. Complete destruction of the works of the devil. Complete life. For the children of God. And brothers and sisters, even the reality of eternal judgment, and I know it's hard to go there on a day like today, but even the reality of eternal judgment, even that will be the final blow against the evil one. Even that will be a part of Christ's triumph and the fulfillment of the purposes of God. From eternity past, it was the purpose of the Father and therefore it became the purpose of the Son and the purpose of the Spirit with him to save a chosen people. To undo in the lives of an elect people the deathly damage that was wrought by the evil one. And when the dust settles on eternity, when the eternal state has been ushered in, both the redemption side of it and the judgment side of it, Then will the Son of God have turned his mission into mission fully accomplished. 
Remember what the devil was about from the beginning. It was to oppose God. It was to oppose the purposes of God. And in the end, all of the purposes of God, both reality and judgment, including the judgment of the devil himself, will be realized. And so we're driven to our knees. When we contemplate the birth of that baby in Bethlehem, we must bow down not only in gratitude before divine grace, but also in humility before divine sovereignty, divine purposes. The Son of God appeared, and brothers and sisters, he appeared for us. And the work that he appeared in order to carry out, he will carry it out for us and in us, and it is already underway. So, friends, you see just how much this verse, this um, half verse, 1 John 3, 8, has to say about the honor that we would pay to Christ. Would you honor Christ this day? We talk about going with the shepherds to pay honor to the child. If you're going to go with the shepherds and approach the manger, how would you honor him? Well, first of all, you cannot approach that manger thinking in the back of your mind that the devil is just the figment of fearful, overactive Christian imagination. You have to have a real sense that that awful creature is real. And that he's busy. And that his invisible fingerprints are all over this cursed world. And the things we read about in the news. And the things that we witness in our own lives. And that this child was born in order to destroy all of it. And we can say this as well. You can't approach the manger to honor him if there's some sin in your life that you've made peace with. Because remember, this child was born to destroy your sins. So you can hardly approach him to honor him with a gift in one hand and some cherished sin in the other without repentance of it. With praise on your lips, but with some sin as a welcome guest in your heart that has come to stay. And finally, you can't approach the manger to honor him, believing all the while that you're the master of your own destiny. Creature, bow down. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So let us, in all of those ways and more, let us truly... Bow before him. He's a baby no more. He's now the risen and reigning king. Let us truly bow before our Savior in heaven, grateful, repentant, humble, faithful, joyful, triumphant, and hopeful as well. Christian, however it may be, that you're burdened today, this morning, with the works of the devil, 
Your sins, his ways, your sorrows. Christian, take heart. In the end, Jesus isn't going to let him win. In the end, Jesus isn't going to let things stay that way. Jesus will prove faithful to destroy because that's why he appeared. Jesus, the Son of God, will be faithful to save. And so let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do bow before you, trembling and rejoicing. We marvel at your appearing. You became flesh and dwelt among us. And where our nature to this day and into eternity. And we thank you for your works. You appeared in order to save. We thank you for all of your works by which you have saved and are saving and will save in the end. We thank you that you will prove faithful to destroy the works of the devil and vindicate the very purposes of God. And surely it is the purpose of God that we be saved to the uttermost. So do we rejoice this day in you. So are we glad to bear the nickname Christians. And we pray all of these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.